For the first hour of notes day, everyone at the company headed to their own departmental meeting. Story, lighting, shading, accounting, what have you. Where they shared ideas with their closest colleagues about how to be more efficient. These departmental meetings, we felt, would serve as a sort of warm-up for the day. It's always easier to be candid with people you know than with strangers. But as John had urged, Pixar's people needed to put their thickest skins and bravest faces on. Because beginning at 10.45 a.m., when everybody headed to their first session, chances were good that for the rest of the day, no Pixar employee was going to find him or herself sitting next to any of the people they knew best. Why? Because the sessions weren't organized by job or by department. They were organized by individual interest. During the lead-up to Notes Day, each person had been asked what they wanted to discuss, and Tom's team had created enough sessions to accommodate everyone. While some topics were so specialized that interest was limited to a narrow subset of employees, for example, to take just one, what range of solutions do we have for improving lighting productivity? Curiosity being what it is, many topics attracted all kinds of people from across the company. If you showed up, for instance, to a brainstorming session called Developing and Appreciating a Great Workplace, it's 2017. Nobody at the studio behaves as if they are entitled. How did we accomplish that? You would have found Pixar's executive chef, a woman who worked in legal, a woman from finance, a veteran animator, a man from systems, and more than a dozen others. What had attracted such a cross-section? For that particular session, everyone said they picked it because of the word entitled in the descriptor. They'd all encountered people who acted entitled at Pixar, people who insisted on having their own piece of equipment, even if it could be shared, or who groused that they couldn't bring their dogs to work. This is a job, one animator said. A great job. We are well paid. These people need to wake up. What was most striking to those in attendance at the great workplace session was how much they had in common. The systems guy told a story about answering a frantic call for tech support, he rushed over to assess the problem, only to be told by the aggrieved artist that the machine should be fixed during lunch, because that's when it would be most convenient for her. I need to eat lunch, too, he told the group as everyone nodded their heads. The chef told a similar story about a last-minute request to cater a working lunch that came without any acknowledgement of the hassle and hustle it would require of her staff. A character animator lamented that he didn't know more about what people in other departments like lighting and shading did. It makes it easy to vilify and resent each other, he said. One by one, the people in this session hit on the same themes. We need to make people behave more like peers, one person said. I wish more people knew about the whole production pipeline, by which I mean that they appreciated and understood what other people do, said another. We need to heighten people's awareness of what they do not know. Among the ideas this group put on their exit forms, fostering more empathy between departments through a job-swapping program 
establishing a lunch lottery that would match people at random to encourage new connections and friendships, and holding cross-departmental mixers designed to let far-flung colleagues get to know each other over a few beers. I chose to describe that session in part because it's broadly relatable. No matter what business you're in, you've run across the scourge of entitlement. Were I to describe some other Notes Day's sessions, one on centralized rendering, say, I think I'd risk losing a few people. But regardless of the topic that was being discussed, no matter where you were on campus, you could feel a frisson of energy. If you stepped into a Pixar restroom or stepped outside for some air, you couldn't avoid overhearing people chatting about how exciting Notes Day was. The feeling was that we were engaged in something that would make a difference. Midway through the day, Tom gathered the facilitators to check briefly how things were going and to encourage them to share their experiences thus far. At one point, he asked, How many of you had suggestions in your sessions that could be implemented immediately? Everybody raised their hands. We'd made a decision to separate out Pixar's executives, directors, and producers from the Notes Day sessions. Partly, this was because it was vital that people speak freely, and we weren't sure they would if we were there. Partly, too, we peeled off because there were particular topics that we needed to consider among ourselves. Creative oversight. Our brain trust sessions as useful as they were ten years ago? Leadership tone and temperament. How can we better foster a culture of inclusiveness in which anyone can suggest a labor-saving idea? The need to spend money where it can do the most good. We have a system that is vulnerable to excess that rewards perfectionists and pleasers. How do we manage perfectionism and the desire to innovate? I knew things were going well from the looks on our colleagues' faces as they hurried from session to session. They were beaming. At day's end, as the entire company gathered outside for beer, hot dogs, and some instant analysis, I noticed people from different departments continuing the discussions they'd begun inside. The energy on the whole campus was electric. This was the Pixar that they wanted, that we wanted. I made a point of stopping by several bulletin boards we directed to encourage people to share their impressions. Among those posted under a variety of categories were Favorite Moment from Notes Day, John Lasseter's Candor, Something New I Learned Today, People Care, People Can Change, How Many New People Did You Meet Today, 23. And then there was this, Notes Day is the proof that Pixar cares about people as much as about finances. And do this again next year. The next morning, I received emails from hundreds of employees. One from a storyboard artist perfectly captured the feeling expressed by many. Hello, Ed, it read. I just wanted to say a post-Notes Day thank you. The day was truly amazing, inspirational, informative, and as I heard many times throughout the day from many people, cathartic. If there was any cynicism anywhere, I didn't see it. Coming away from it, I felt as though the company shrank a little. 
I met new people, got completely new points of view, and learned what other departments struggle with and succeed with. I don't know if a metric exists to measure the impact of Note Stay, but from where I was standing, it was huge. In the end, I think we all walked away with a sense of ownership over this amazing place and its future. A we're-all-in-this-together feel. If nothing else, this is a huge victory. John's openness and courage to speak about his feedback set an unbelievable bar. His admission put the entire company firmly behind him and was one of the finest instances of leading by example I can think of. I think we can all learn from that and accept our own introspection slash feedback with a similar grace and humility. Thank you so much for creating an environment where this kind of discussion can happen. You'll remember that the exit forms filled out by Notes Day participants weren't shy about asking, who should pitch this proposal? That was by design. We wanted the best ideas to be pushed forward, not to languish. So in the weeks after Notes Day, all those who'd volunteered to be idea advocates were called in to work with Tom and his team to hone their pitches. Then they began making them to me, John, and our general manager, Jim Morris, and together we immediately began moving to implement the ones that made sense. The ideas that emerged on Notes Day, in other words, were not gathering dust in a drawer. They were changing Pixar, meaningfully and for the better. The specific procedural changes will sound mundane to anyone who doesn't work in animation. We implemented a faster, more secure way, to cite a tiny example, of delivering the latest cuts of films to directors. But when you add them all up, they mattered. In the weeks after Notes Day, we implemented four good ideas, committed to five more, and earmarked still a dozen more for continued development. All of them stood to improve either our processes, our culture, or the way Pixar is managed. Most importantly, though, we broke the logjam that was getting in the way of candor and making it feel dangerous. Some people might measure the day's success by charting the concrete results that resulted from it. And in fact, we have paid attention to that too. But real improvement comes from consistent rigor and participation. For this reason, I believe the biggest payoff of Notes Day was that we made it safer for people to say what they thought. Notes Day made it okay to disagree. That and the feeling our people had that they were part of the solution were its biggest contributions. What made Notes Day work? To me, it boils down to three factors. First, there was a clear and focused goal. This wasn't a free-for-all, but a wide-ranging discussion organized around topics suggested not by human resources or by Pixar's executives, but by the company's employees, aimed at addressing a specific reality, the need to cut our costs by 10%. While the discussion topics were allowed, even encouraged to stray into areas that might seem only vaguely related to this goal, the fact that it was there was key. It provided a framework, 
and it kept us from falling into confusion. Second, this was an idea championed by those at the highest levels of the company. Had the enormous task of making Notes Day a reality been shunted off on someone who didn't have the clout to throw muscle behind it, and not entrusted to Tom, who in turn recruited the most organized people in the company to help him, it would have been an entirely different experience. Employees wouldn't have bought into the idea because they'd sensed that management hadn't either, and that would have rendered Notes Day moot. Third, and relatedly, Notes Day was led from within. Many companies hire outside consulting firms to organize their all-staff retreats, and I understand why. Doing them well is a monumental, enormously time-consuming undertaking. But that our own people made Notes Day happen was, I believe, key to its success. Not only did they drive the discussion in meaningful ways, but their involvement also paid its own dividends. Seeing themselves engage and cooperate, steering the agenda towards something that could make a real difference, they remembered why they worked at Pixar. Their commitment was contagious. Notes Day wasn't an end point, but a beginning, a way of making room for our employees to step forward and think about their role in our company's future. I said before that problems are easy to identify, but finding the source of those problems is extraordinarily difficult. Notes brought problems to the surface, but we still had the hard work in front of us. Notes Day didn't solve anything all by itself, but it shifted our culture, repaired it even, in ways that will make us better as we go forward. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Things change constantly, as they should. And with change comes the need for adaptation, for fresh thinking, and sometimes for even a total reboot of your project, your department, your division, or your company as a whole. In times of change, we need support from our families and from our colleagues. I'm reminded here of a letter written by one of our animators, Austin Madison, which I found particularly uplifting. To whom it may inspire, Austin wrote. I, like many of you artists out there, constantly shift between two states. The first and far more preferable of the two, is white-hot, in-the-zone, seat-of-the-pants, firing-on-all-cylinders creative mode. This is when you lay your pen down and the ideas pour out like wine from a royal chalice. This happens about 3% of the time. The other 97% of the time, I am in the frustrated, struggling, office corner full of crumpled-up paper mode. The important thing is to slog diligently through this quagmire of discouragement and despair. Put on some audio commentary and listen to the stories of professionals who have been making films for decades, going through the same slings and arrows of outrageous production problems. In a word, persist. Persist on telling your story. Persist on reaching your audience. Persist on staying true to your vision. I couldn't have put it any better. My goal has never been to tell people how Pixar and Disney figured it all out 
but rather to show how we continue to figure it out every hour of every day, how we persist. The future is not a destination. It is a direction. It is our job, then, to work each day to chart the right course and make corrections when, inevitably, we stray. I already can sense the next crisis coming around the corner. To keep a creative culture vibrant, we must not be afraid of constant uncertainty. We must accept it just as we accept the weather. Uncertainty and change are life's constants, and that's the fun part. The truth is, as challenges emerge, mistakes will always be made, and our work is never done. We will always have problems, many of which are hidden from our view. We must work to uncover them and assess our own role in them, even if doing so means making ourselves uncomfortable. When we then come across a problem, we must marshal all our energies to solve it. If those assertions sound familiar, that's because I used them to kick off this book. There's something else that bears repeating here. Unleashing creativity requires that we loosen the controls, accept risk, trust our colleagues, work to clear the path for them, and pay attention to anything that creates fear. Doing all these things won't necessarily make the job of managing a creative culture easier. But ease isn't the goal. Excellence is. Afterward, the Steve we knew. It was the end of 1985, and the computer division I ran at Lucasfilm was short on suitors and, it seemed, out of options. Our tires had been kicked by anyone with even the slightest interest in computer-generated imaging. We'd made a promising match with General Motors, only to be left at the altar. Then Steve Jobs swooped in. As I related earlier, it was around this time that one of his attorneys pulled us aside during a meeting and jokingly, I think, said that we were about to climb aboard the Steve Jobs roller coaster. Get on we did, and what a ride it would prove to be, with all of the attendant ups and downs. I worked closely with Steve Jobs for 26 years. To this day, for all that has been written about him, I don't believe that any of it comes close to capturing the man I knew. I've been frustrated that the stories about him tend to focus so narrowly on his extreme traits and the negative, difficult aspects of his personality. Inevitably, Profiles of Steve describe him as stubborn and imperious, a man who held steadfastly and unwaveringly to his own ideals, refusing to budge or change, and who often tried to browbeat others into doing things his way. While many of the anecdotes people repeat about his behavior as a young executive are probably accurate, the overall portrait is way off the mark. The reality is, Steve changed profoundly in the years that I knew him. The word genius is used a lot these days. Too much, I think. But with Steve, 
I actually think it was warranted. Still, when I first came to know him, he was frequently dismissive and brusque. This is the part of Steve that people love to write about. I realize that it is difficult to understand people who deviate so radically from the norm, like Steve did, and I suspect that those who focus on his more extreme traits do so because those traits are entertaining and revealing in some way. To let them drive Steve's narrative, however, is to miss the more important story. In the time I worked with Steve, he didn't just gain the kind of practical experience you would expect to acquire while running two dynamic, successful businesses. He also got smarter about when to stop pushing people and how to keep pushing them, if necessary, without breaking them. He became fairer and wiser, and his understanding of partnership deepened in large part because of his marriage to Laureen and his relationships with the children he loved so much. This shift didn't lead him to abandon his famous commitment to innovation. It solidified it. At the same time, he developed into a kinder, more self-aware leader. And I think Pixar played a role in that development. Remember, in the late 1980s when Pixar was founded, Steve was spending most of his time building Next, the computer company he'd started after being forced out of Apple. At Pixar, none of us, including Steve, knew what we were doing. Steve would overreach in early negotiations with customers, which sometimes worked but sometimes backfired. At Next, for instance, he struck a $100 million deal that allowed IBM to use the Next software. The huge dollar amount, combined with the fact that Steve didn't give IBM rights to subsequent versions of the software, seemed like a home-run deal for Next. In fact, Steve had overreached. His behavior created ill will, and he later told me he learned from that. In those early days, Steve sensed that there was something quite special going on at Pixar, but it frustrated him that he couldn't figure it out and kept losing money in the meantime. He had an expensive group that was ahead of its time. Could he hang on long enough for that potential to flower, especially if he didn't know if it ever would flower? What kind of person signs on for that? Would you? We tend to think of emotion and logic as two distinct, mutually exclusive domains. Not Steve. From the beginning, when making decisions, passion was a key part of his calculus. At first, he often elicited it in a ham-handed way, by making extreme or outrageous statements and challenging people to respond. But at Pixar, even when we were a long way from being in the black, that aggressiveness was tempered by his acknowledgement that we knew things about graphics and storytelling that he did not. He respected our determination to be the first to make a computer-animated feature film. He didn't tell us how to do our work or come in and impose his will. Even when we were unsure how to reach our goal, our passion was something Steve recognized and valued. 
That's what Steve, John, and I ultimately bonded over. Passion for excellence. A passion so ardent we were willing to argue and struggle and stay together, even when things got extremely uncomfortable. I remember being struck by Steve's response to passion when we were working on our second film, A Bug's Life. There was an internal disagreement about the aspect ratio of the film, the proportional relationship between its width and its height. In a movie theater, films are displayed in widescreen format, where the width of the picture is more than twice the height. On the TVs of that time, by contrast, the width of the picture was only one and one-third times the height, more of a boxy shape. When you make a video version of a widescreen film that will be viewed on a TV monitor then, you either end up with black bars at the top and bottom of the screen, or you clip off the sides of the picture completely, neither of which is a good representation of the original film. On A Bug's Life, the marketing people were in conflict with the filmmakers. The filmmakers wanted the widescreen format because it led to a better panoramic experience in the theater, which they believed to be more important than the home-viewing experience. The marketers, believing that consumers were less likely to buy a video with black bars on the top and bottom, argued that the widescreen format would mean a reduction in our DVD sales. Steve, no film buff, agreed with the marketing people that we would be hurting ourselves financially if we released the movie in widescreen. The debate about this was still unresolved when one afternoon I took Steve around the offices so he could see some of Pixar's departments in action, and we ended up in a room full of people who were working on lighting a scene from A Bug's Life. The production designer on the film, Bill Cohn, was showing some images on monitors that happened to be in widescreen format. Seeing this, Steve interjected, in his way, that it was nuts for us to be making a widescreen movie. Bill, to his credit, came right back at him, explaining why the widescreen format was absolutely crucial from an artistic standpoint. An intense back and forth followed. I wouldn't call it an argument, but it was definitely heated. The discussion seemed to end inconclusively, and Steve and I continued on our rounds. Later, Bill came to see me, looking rattled. Oh, my God, he said. I was just arguing with Steve Jobs. Did I blow it? On the contrary, I told him. You won. I could see something that Bill couldn't. Steve had responded to Bill's passion about the issue. The fact that Bill was willing to stand up so forcefully and articulately for what he believed showed Steve that Bill's ideas were worthy of respect. Steve never raised the format issue with us again. It wasn't that passion trumped logic in Steve's mind. He was well aware that decisions must never be based on emotions alone. But he also saw that creativity wasn't linear, that art was not commerce, and that to insist upon applying dollars and cents logic was to risk disrupting the thing that set us apart. Steve put a premium on both sides of this equation, logic and emotion, and the way he maintained that balance was key to understanding him.
In the mid-1990s, it became clear that Pixar, long housed in a few cramped, tilt-up buildings in Point Richmond, California, was going to need a new home. The time had come to establish a proper headquarters, a place of our own suited to our needs. Steve threw himself into designing it, and the magnificent main building that we occupy today is the outgrowth of all that work. But it didn't come easily. Steve's first pass at a design was based on some peculiar ideas he had about how to force interaction among people. At an off-site staff meeting to discuss these plans in 1998, several people rose to complain about his intent to build a single women's and a single men's restroom. Steve relented, but he was clearly frustrated that people didn't understand what he was trying to do bring people together out of necessity. At first, Steve struggled to find the best way to enable that mutual experience. Next, he envisioned a separate building for each movie under production, the idea being that each crew would benefit from having its own contained space free of distraction. I wasn't so sure about that, so I asked him to go on a road trip. Showing, not telling, worked best with Steve, which is why I coaxed him south to Burbank for a tour of the four-story glazed glass and aluminum building on Thornton Avenue known as Northside. Disney Animation had taken it over in 1997, using it to house the crew for its first 3D animated movie, Dinosaur, among other projects. But the building was more famous for what it had housed in the 1940s, Lockheed's top-secret Skunk Works division, which designed jet fighters, spy planes, and at least one stealth fighter. I loved that bit of history, and the fact that the name Skunk Works itself had been borrowed from Al Cap's newspaper comic strip, Lil Abner. In that strip, there was a running joke about a mysterious and malodorous place deep in the forest called the Skunk Works, where a strong beverage was brewed from skunks, old shoes, and other strange ingredients. Steve knew that my purpose that day wasn't to discuss comic strips or aviation history, but to show him the building, a welcoming space where several hundred animators worked on multiple projects simultaneously under a single roof. I liked the feel of the wide-open hallways. I recall Steve being critical of numerous facets of the building's layout, but after an hour or so wandering around the place, I could tell he was getting the message. Creating separate buildings for each film would be isolating. He saw firsthand the way that the Disney people took advantage of the open floor plan, sharing information and brainstorming. Steve was a big believer in the power of accidental mingling. He knew that creativity was not a solitary endeavor, but our trip to Northside helped clarify that thinking. In a creative company, separating your people into distinct silos, Project A over here, Project B over there, can be counterproductive. After that trip, he met again with his architects and laid out the principles for a single building. He took the creation of a new Pixar headquarters as a personal responsibility. You've heard the saying, your employees are your most important asset. 
For most executives, these are just words you trot out to make people feel good. While they may be accepted as true, few leaders alter their behavior or make decisions based upon them. But Steve did, taking that principle and building our headquarters around it. Everything about the place was designed to encourage people to mingle, meet, and communicate to support our filmmaking by enhancing our ability to work together. In the end, Steve presided over every detail of our new building's construction, from the arched steel bridges that straddle the central atrium to the type of chairs in our screening rooms. He didn't want perceived barriers, so the stairs were open and inviting. He wanted a single entrance to the building so that we saw each other as we entered. We had meeting rooms, restrooms, a mail room, three theaters, a game area, and an eating area, all at the center in our atrium, where to this day everyone gathers to eat, play ping-pong, or be briefed by Pixar's leaders on the company's goings-on. This all resulted in cross-traffic. People encountered each other all day long, inadvertently, which meant a better flow of communication and increase the possibility of chance encounters. You felt the energy in the building. Steve had thought all this through with the meta-logic of a philosopher and the meticulousness of a craftsman. He believed in simple materials masterfully constructed. He wanted all the steel exposed, not painted. He wanted glass doors to be flush with the walls. No wonder that when it opened in the fall of 2000, after four years of planning and construction, Pixar's people, who typically worked for four years on each film, took to calling the building Steve's Movie. I admit that there were moments when I worried that Pixar would fall prey to the edifice complex, wherein companies build shiny headquarters that are mere extensions of executive ego. But that worry proved unfounded. From the day we moved in, on Thanksgiving weekend of 2000, the building became an extraordinary and fertile home. Moreover, in our employees' minds, it transformed Steve, always our external defender, into an integral part of our internal culture. The environment was so exemplary and so clearly attributed to Steve that everyone could appreciate his singular contribution to and understanding of the way we worked. That appreciation was a positive development because, as I've said before, upon meeting Steve, people typically had to become accustomed to his style. Brad Bird remembers a meeting during the making of The Incredibles, soon after he joined the studio, when Steve hurt his feelings by saying that some of The Incredibles' artwork looked kind of Saturday morning, a reference to the low-budget cartoons that Hanna-Barbera and others produced. In my world, that's kind of like saying your mama sleeps around, Brad recalls. I was seething. When the meeting ended, I went over to Andrew and said, Man, Steve just said something that really pissed me off. And Andrew, without even asking what it was, said, Only one thing? Brad came to understand that Steve was speaking not as a critic, but as the ultimate advocate. Too often, animated superheroes had been made on the cheap and looked that way, too. 
On that, Stephen Brad could agree. The Incredibles, he was implying, had to reach higher. He was just saying that we have to show this is something bigger, Brad says, and that epitomized Steve. Though no one outside Pixar knew it, Steve developed a lasting bond with our directors. At first, I thought this was just because he appreciated their creative and leadership abilities, and they, in turn, appreciated the support and insight he gave them. But as I paid closer attention, I recognized there was something very important that they shared. When directors pitch an idea, for example, they invest totally, even though a part of them knows that in the end it may not work at all. Pitching is a way of testing material, taking its measure, and, importantly, strengthening it by observing how it plays to an audience. But if the idea doesn't fly, they are extremely adept at dropping it and moving on. This is a rare skill, one that Steve had, too. Steve had a remarkable knack for letting go of things that didn't work. If you were in an argument with him and you convinced him that you were right, he would instantly change his mind. He didn't hold on to an idea because he had once believed it to be brilliant. His ego didn't attach to the suggestions he made, even as he threw his full weight behind them. When Steve saw Pixar's directors do the same, he recognized them as kindred spirits. One of the dangers of this approach can be that if you are pitching intently, your very exuberance can make others reluctant to respond candidly. When someone has a strong personality, others can wilt in the face of their intensity. How do you prevent this from happening? The trick is to shift the emphasis in any meeting away from the source of an idea and onto the idea itself. People often place too much significance on the source of an idea, accepting it or not criticizing it, because it comes from Steve or a respected director. But Steve had no interest in that kind of affirmation. Countless times I remember watching him toss ideas, pretty far-out ideas, into the air just to see how they played. And if they didn't play well, he would move on. This is, in effect, a form of storytelling, searching for the best way to frame and communicate an idea. If people didn't understand Steve, they would misinterpret his floating of ideas as advocacy, and they would wrongly perceive his enthusiasm or insistence as intransigence or bullheadedness. Instead, he was gauging reactions to his ideas to see whether or not he should become their advocate. Steve is not commonly described as a storyteller, and he was always careful to say he didn't know the first thing about filmmaking. Yet part of his bond with our directors stemmed from the fact that he knew how important it was to construct a story that connected with people. This was a skill he used in his presentations at Apple. When he got up in front of an audience to introduce a new product, he understood that he would communicate more effectively if he put forward a narrative, and anyone who ever saw him do it could tell you that he gave extraordinary and carefully crafted performances. At Pixar, Steve was able to participate in other people's crafting of their stories, 
and I believe this process helped him understand more about human dynamics. There was something about applying his intellect to the emotion of a film. Was it landing, did it ring true, that freed him up, and he came to see that Pixar's success was reliant on its movies connecting deeply with an audience. Given the way his behavior has been described in the past, you might think that giving constructive feedback to a vulnerable director on a not-baked-yet film would not be something that Steve could do gracefully, if at all. But in fact, over time, he became quite skilled at it. Pete Doctor remembers Steve telling him once that he hoped in his next life he would come back as a Pixar director. I have no doubt that if he did, he'd be one of the best. As summer gave way to fall in 2003, Steve became increasingly hard to get a hold of. He was known for responding to emails at all times of day and night within minutes. But now I would call or email and not hear back. In October, he dropped by Pixar, which was unusual. Unless there was a board meeting, we usually briefed each other by phone. When John and I sat down with him, Steve closed the door and told us that he'd been having this aching in his back that wouldn't go away. His doctor had recently sent him for a CAT scan, which revealed pancreatic cancer. Ninety-five percent of people with this diagnosis are not alive five years later, he told us. Steve was determined to fight, but he knew he might not win. Over the next eight years, Steve underwent a seemingly endless variety of treatments, both traditional and experimental. As his energy waned, our interactions became less frequent, though he still called weekly to check in, offer advice, and voice concerns. At one point during this period, John and I drove down to Apple to have lunch with him. Afterward, Steve took us into a secure room where Apple kept the super-secret products and showed us an early prototype of something he called the iPhone. It had a touch screen that engaged the user, making navigation not just easy, but fun. We could instantly see that it made the phones we were carrying in our pockets look like ancient artifacts. He was particularly jazzed about it, he said, because it was his goal not just to create a phone people used, but to design a phone people loved, one that made their lives better, both functionally and aesthetically. He thought Apple had succeeded in creating such a device. As we walked out of the vault, Steve stopped in the hallway and said he had been working on a list of three things he wanted to do, and I remember the words precisely, before I sail away. One goal that mattered enormously to him was to roll out the product he'd just shown us, along with a few others that he believed would ensure Apple's future. The second was to safeguard Pixar's continued success and the third and most important was to set his three youngest children on a good path. I remember him saying that he hoped he would be around to watch his son Reed, then in eighth grade, graduate from high school. To hear this once unstoppable man scaling back his hopes and ambitions to a handful of last wishes was heartbreaking, of course, but I remember thinking that when Steve said it, it sounded natural. It felt like he had come to terms with the inevitability of not being here.
In the end, he would achieve all three of his goals. On a Sunday afternoon in February 2007, my daughter Jeannie and I stepped out of a town car onto a long red carpet and ran smack into Steve Jobs. It was a few hours before the 79th Annual Academy Awards, and to get to our seats, the three of us had to plow through the crush of people outside the Kodak Theater in the heart of Hollywood. Cars was nominated for Best Animated Feature Film, and like all award hopefuls, we had a few pre-show jitters. But as the three of us jostled along, Steve looked around at the circus. The elegantly turned-out men and women, the scrum of television interviewers, the throngs of paparazzi and screaming onlookers, the lines of limousines pulling up at the curb, and said, What this scene really needs is a Buddhist monk lighting himself on fire. Perspective is so hard to capture. I worked with Steve for more than a quarter century, longer, I believe, than anyone else, and I saw an arc to his life that does not accord with the one-note portraits of relentless perfectionism I've read in magazines, newspapers, and even his own authorized biography. Relentless Steve, the boorish, brilliant, but emotionally tone-deaf guy that we first came to know, changed into a different man during the last two decades of his life. All of us who knew Steve well noticed the transformation. He became more sensitive not only to other people's feelings, but also to their value as contributors to the creative process. His experience with Pixar was part of this change. Steve aspired to create utilitarian things that also brought joy. It was his way of making the world a better place. That was part of why Pixar made him so proud, because he felt the world was better for the films we made. He used to say regularly that as brilliant as Apple products were, eventually they all ended up in landfills. Pixar movies, on the other hand, would live forever. He believed, as I do, that because they dig for deeper truths, our movies will endure, and he found beauty in that idea. John talks about the nobility of entertaining people. Steve understood this mission to his core, particularly toward the end of his life, and knowing that entertaining wasn't his primary skill set, he felt lucky to have been involved in it. Pixar occupied a special place in Steve's world, and his role evolved during our time together. In the early years, he was our benefactor, the one who paid the bills to keep the lights on. Later, he became our protector, a constructive critic internally, but our fiercest defender to the outside. We had some trying times together, to be sure, but through those difficulties, we forged a rare bond. I've always thought that Pixar was like a well-loved stepchild for Steve, conceived before he entered our lives, maybe, but still nurtured by him in our formative years. In the decade before his death, I watched Steve change Pixar even as Pixar changed him. I say this while acknowledging that no segment of one's life can be divorced from the rest. Steve was, of course, always learning from his family and from his colleagues at Apple. But there was something special about the time he spent with us, enhanced counterintuitively by the fact 
that Pixar was his sideline. His wife and children, of course, were paramount, and Apple was his first and most heralded professional achievement. Pixar was a place he could relax a little and play. While he never lost his intensity, we watched him develop the ability to listen. More and more, he could express empathy and caring and patience. He became truly wise. The change in him was real, and it was deep. In Chapter 5, I mentioned that at my insistence, Steve didn't attend brain trust meetings. But he would often give notes after movies were screened for Pixar's board of directors. Once or twice per movie, when a crisis loomed, he would inevitably come in and say something that helped alter our perceptions and improve the film. Whenever offering a note, he always began the same way. I'm not really a filmmaker, so you can ignore everything I say. Then he would proceed, with startling efficiency, to diagnose the problem precisely. Steve focused on the problem itself, not the filmmakers, which made his critiques all the more powerful. If you sense a criticism is being leveled for personal reasons, it is easy to dismiss. You couldn't dismiss Steve. Every film he commented on benefited from his insight. But while in the early days his opinions would swing wildly and his delivery could be abrupt, he became more articulate and observant of people's feelings as time went on. He learned to read the room, demonstrating skills that years earlier I didn't think he had. Some people have said that he got mellower with age, but I don't think that's an adequate description of what happened. It sounds too passive, as if he just was letting more go. Steve's transformation was an active one. He continued to engage. He just changed the way he went about it. There is a phrase that many have used to describe Steve's knack for accomplishing the impossible. Steve, they say, employed a reality distortion field. In his biography of Steve, Walter Isaacson devoted an entire chapter to it, quoting Andy Hertzfeld, a member of the original Mac team at Apple, saying, The reality distortion field was a confounding melange of a charismatic rhetorical style indomitable will, and eagerness to bend any fact to fit the purpose at hand. I heard the phrase used fairly often around Pixar, too. Some people, after listening to Steve, would feel that they had reached a new level of insight, only to find afterward that they could not reconstruct the steps in his reasoning. Then the insight would evaporate, leaving them scratching their heads feeling they had been led down the garden path. Thus, reality distortion. I disliked the phrase because it carried a whiff of negativity, implying that Steve would try to will a fantasy world into being on a whim without regard to how his refusal to face facts meant that everybody around him had to pull all-nighters and upend their lives in the hopes of meeting his unmeetable expectations. Much has been made of Steve's refusal to follow rules, realities, that applied to others. Famously, for example, he did not put a license plate on his car. But to focus too much on this is to miss something important. He recognized that many rules were in fact arbitrary. 
Yes, he tested boundaries and crossed the line at times. As a behavioral trait, that can be seen as antisocial. Or if it happens to change the world, it can earn you the label visionary. We frequently support the idea of pushing boundaries in theory, ignoring the trouble it can cause in practice. Before Pixar was called Pixar, it was devoted to accomplishing something that had never been done before. For me, this had been a lifelong goal, and my colleagues at Pixar, Steve among them, were willing to make that leap too before computers had enough speed or memory to make it a reality. A characteristic of creative people is that they imagine making the impossible possible. That imagining, dreaming, noodling, audaciously rejecting what is for the moment true, is the way we discover what is new or important. Steve understood the value of science and law, but he also understood that complex systems respond in nonlinear, unpredictable ways and that creativity, at its best, surprises us all. There is another different meaning of reality distortion for me. It stems from my belief that our decisions and actions have consequences, and that those consequences shape our future. Our actions change our reality. Our intentions matter. Most people believe that their actions have consequences but don't think through the implications of that belief. But Steve did. He believed, as I do, that it is precisely by acting on our intentions and staying true to our values that we change the world. On August 24, 2011, Steve resigned as Apple's CEO, as he was no longer able to keep pace with the rigors of the job he loved. Shortly thereafter, I was exercising at home early in the morning when the phone rang. It was Steve. To be honest, I can't remember exactly what was said because I knew he was nearing the end and that was an incredibly difficult reality to deal with. But I recall that his voice was strong, stronger than it should have been given what he'd been through, as he talked about how many years we'd worked together and how grateful he was to have had that experience. I remember him saying that he felt honored to have been a part of Pixar's success. I told him I felt honored, too, and was thankful for his friendship, his example, and his loyalty. When we hung up, I said to myself, that was the goodbye call. I was right. He would live six more weeks, but I would never hear his voice again. On a Monday morning five days after his death, the entire Pixar workforce gathered in the atrium of the building Steve had built to mourn and remember. By 11 a.m., the atrium was full of people, and it was time to begin. I stood off to the side, thinking about the man who'd been Pixar's fiercest champion and a close friend. It fell on me to speak first. There were so many things I could say about Steve how he bought the division that would become Pixar from George Lucas in 1986, saving us from extinction, how he encouraged us to embark on our first feature film, Toy Story, three years later, when the idea of a computer-animated film still seemed beyond our reach, 
how he'd solidified our future by selling us to Disney and then ensured our autonomy by orchestrating a merger that created a true partnership, how he helped take us from 43 employees to the 1,100 men and women who stood in front of me now. Looking back, I could recall the earliest moments of our relationship, him probing and poking, me honing and fortifying my ideas. He had made me more focused, more resilient, smarter, better. Over time, I had come to rely on his demanding specificity, which never failed to help me clarify my own thinking. I could already feel the weight of his absence. I remember 25 years ago in February, the day that Pixar was formed, I began, recalling how we gathered in a conference room at Lucasfilm to sign the papers, transferring majority ownership to Steve. We were exhausted, having spent months looking for potential suitors before Steve stepped forward. For those who weren't at Pixar in the beginning, I recalled how Steve had pulled Alvy Ray Smith and me aside, put his arms around us, and said, As we're going through this, there's one thing I dearly ask, and that is that we be loyal to each other. I told my colleagues that Steve had always made good on that promise. Over the years, Pixar and Steve went through a lot of changes and a lot of hardships, I said. These were very hard times. Pixar came close to collapsing. Any other investor or venture capitalist would have given up, but not Steve. He demanded of himself what he'd asked of us, loyalty. I don't know what happens in the future, I concluded as the sun streamed through the skylights above us, but I do believe that Steve's focus on passion and quality will take us places that we cannot yet perceive, and for that I am truly grateful. At that moment, I was more aware than ever of how important it was to understand and protect what had made Steve so proud. It had always been my goal to create a culture at Pixar that would outlast its leaders, Steve, John, and me. Now one of us had taken his leave too soon, and the job of fortifying that culture, ensuring that it would be self-sustaining, was left to John and me. When I was done, I offered the microphone to others who'd had a close relationship with Steve, and one by one they stepped onto the podium. Andrew Stanton described Steve as the creative firewall. With Steve around, the people of Pixar were like free-range chickens, he said, getting a laugh. Steve would do anything to keep us creatively safe. The ever-observant Pete Doctor got up next and recalled one of the most endearing images he had of Steve. During a meeting one day years ago, Pete noticed that Steve had two small, identical holes in one of the legs of his Levi's 501s. Steve shifted in his seat, and Pete noticed the same two holes on the other leg, too. In the same spot, right above the ankle. As Pete was trying and failing to imagine a reason for these symmetrical holes, Steve reached down to pull up his socks by grabbing them through his pants, putting his fingers right where the holes were. 
Here, Steve was worth millions, but apparently getting a new pair of pants was not important to him, Pete said. Or maybe he needed new socks with better elastic. Either way, it was a humanizing aspect to this larger-than-life guy. Brad Bird recalled that when he first started talking to Pixar about doing The Incredibles, he wasn't sure if he would take the offer. He was still considering staying with Warner Brothers, which had released his earlier movie, The Iron Giant. But it took me a month to get a meeting with the administration of the studio I'd just made a movie for, Brad said. And in the meantime, Steve knew the name of my wife, asked how my kids were by name. He did his homework. I thought, what the hell am I doing talking to Warner Brothers? It cinched the deal. Steve held the bar for quality, Brad continued. He was always about the long run. He was into Buddhism, but I see him more as just a spiritual guy. I have to believe that he believed in something beyond this, he hesitated, overcome for a moment, and that's where we'll see him again, where cream rises to the top. So here's to you, Steve, and to the long run. It was John's turn now. The room fell silent, but you could feel the current of emotion around us all. Stepping to the podium, he described what an honor it had been to be Steve's friend as he changed, like we all aspire to do, for the better. When Steve first bought us, John said, there was a confidence he had. Some people call it arrogance. I call it confidence but it was basically a belief that he could do anybody's job better than they could. That's why people hated getting into an elevator at Apple with Steve, because they felt by the time they got to the top floor, they'd probably be fired. Again, the room broke out in laughter. But as Pixar evolved into an animation studio, he started to look at all the work that we were doing, and he was amazed. He realized he couldn't even come close to doing what we could do. I like to think that when he was building Pixar, when he and Laureen got married and he had his kids, that that realization of how brilliant the people here at Pixar were, that all this helped make him the amazing leader he was. Three weeks before, John had visited Steve for the last time. We sat for about an hour talking about coming projects he was so interested in, John said, his voice catching. I looked at him, and I realized this man had given me, given us, everything that we could ever want. I gave him a big hug. I kissed him on the cheek, and for all of you, John was crying now, I said, Thank you. I love you, Steve. The room erupted in applause, which only ebbed when one of the Pixar singers took the stage. In a quiet voice, he announced that just as our resident a cappella group had sung at every Pixar rap party in our company's history, it would now sing for Steve, too. Standing in the building that we all called Steve's Movie, I couldn't help but think that he would have loved this, a fitting rap to the production that was Steve Jobs. The roller coaster came to a stop, and a good friend got off. But what a ride we'd taken together. It had been one hell of a trip. 
Starting Points Thoughts for Managing a Creative Culture Here are some of the principles we've developed over the years to enable and protect a healthy creative culture. I know that when you distill a complex idea into a t-shirt slogan, you risk giving the illusion of understanding and, in the process, of sapping the idea of its power. An adage worth repeating is also halfway to being irrelevant. You end up with something that is easy to say, but not connected to behavior. But while I have been dismissive of reductive truths throughout this book, I do have a point of view, and I thought it might be helpful to share some of the principles that I hold most dear here with you. The trick is to think of each statement as a starting point, as a prompt toward deeper inquiry, and not as a conclusion. Give a good idea to a mediocre team and they will screw it up. Give a mediocre idea to a great team and they will either fix it or come up with something better. If you get the team right, chances are that they'll get the ideas right. When looking to hire people, give their potential to grow more weight than their current skill level. What they will be capable of tomorrow is more important than what they can do today. Always try to hire people who are smarter than you. Always take a chance on better, even if it seems like a potential threat. If there are people in your organization who feel they are not free to suggest ideas, you lose. Do not discount ideas from unexpected sources. Inspiration can and does come from anywhere. It isn't enough merely to be open to ideas from others. Engaging the collective brain power of the people you work with is an active, ongoing process. As a manager, you must coax ideas out of your staff and constantly push them to contribute. There are many valid reasons why people aren't candid with one another in a work environment. Your job is to search for those reasons and then address them. Likewise, if someone disagrees with you, there is a reason. Our first job is to understand the reasoning behind their conclusions. Further, if there is fear in an organization, there is a reason for it. Our job is A, to find what's causing it, B, to understand it, and C, to try to root it out. There is nothing quite as effective when it comes to shutting down alternative viewpoints as being convinced you are right. In general, people are hesitant to say things that might rock the boat. Brain trust meetings, dailies, post-mortems, and notes day are all efforts to reinforce the idea that it is okay to express yourself. All are mechanisms of self-assessment that seek to uncover what's real. If there is more truth in the hallways than in meetings, you have a problem. Many managers feel that if they are not notified about problems before others are, or if they are surprised in a meeting, then that is a sign of disrespect. Get over it. Careful messaging to downplay problems makes you appear to be lying, 
deluded, ignorant, or uncaring. Sharing problems is an act of inclusion that makes employees feel invested in the larger enterprise. The first conclusions we draw from our successes and failures are typically wrong. Measuring the outcome without evaluating the process is deceiving. Do not fall for the illusion that by preventing errors, you won't have errors to fix. The truth is, the cost of preventing errors is often far greater than the cost of fixing them. Change and uncertainty are part of life. Our job is not to resist them, but to build the capability to recover when unexpected events occur. If you don't always try to uncover what is unseen and understand its nature, you will be ill-prepared to lead. Similarly, it is not the manager's job to prevent risks. It is the manager's job to make it safe to take them. Failure isn't a necessary evil. In fact, it isn't evil at all. It is a necessary consequence of doing something new. Trust doesn't mean that you trust that someone won't screw up. It means you trust them even when they do screw up. The people ultimately responsible for implementing a plan must be empowered to make decisions when things go wrong even before getting approval. Finding and fixing problems is everybody's job. Anyone should be able to stop the production line. The desire for everything to run smoothly is a false goal. It leads to measuring people by the mistakes they make rather than by their ability to solve problems. Don't wait for things to be perfect before you share them with others. Show early and show often. It'll be pretty when we get there, but it won't be pretty along the way. And that's as it should be. A company's communication structure should not mirror its organizational structure. Everybody should be able to talk to anybody. Be wary of making too many rules. Rules can simplify life for managers, but they can be demeaning to the 95% who behave well. Don't create rules to rein in the other 5%. Address abuses of common sense individually. This is more work, but ultimately healthier. Imposing limits can encourage a creative response. Excellent work can emerge from uncomfortable or seemingly untenable circumstances. Engaging with exceptionally hard problems forces us to think differently. An organization as a whole is more conservative and resistant to change than the individuals who comprise it. Do not assume that general agreement will lead to change. It takes substantial energy to move a group, even when all are on board. The healthiest organizations are made up of departments whose agendas differ, but whose goals are interdependent. If one agenda wins, we all lose.
Our job as managers in creative environments is to protect new ideas from those who don't understand that in order for greatness to emerge, there must be phases of not-so-greatness. Protect the future, not the past. New crises are not always lamentable. They test and demonstrate a company's values. The process of problem-solving often bonds people together and keeps the culture in the present. Excellence, quality, and good should be earned words attributed by others to us, not proclaimed by us about ourselves. Do not accidentally make stability a goal. Balance is more important than stability. Don't confuse the process with the goal. Working on our processes to make them better, easier, and more efficient is an indispensable activity and something we should continually work on. But it is not the goal. Making the product great is the goal. This is Peter Altshuler. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Creativity, Inc., Overcoming the Unseen Forces that Stand in the Way of True Inspiration by Ed Catmull with Amy Wallace. This program was directed by Christina Rooney, Executive Producer Dan Musselman, Text Copyright 2014 by Ed Catmull, Production Copyright 2014, Random House, LLC, All Rights Reserved.